I want to spend a little time in Romans 9. We did some in Sunday school. The reason why is because I went back and listened to and read some of different uh, Arminian-type approaches to Romans chapter 9, and I thought, you know what, uh, th- this has got to be addressed a little bit more directly in that regard, because there are there are different ways that people attempt to interpret Romans 9 that I don't think are right. And I think that can be demonstrated, but there there is a superficial uh, counter-argument that needs to be addressed, which is basically, it goes like this. This chapter is not about the salvation, eternal salvation, or eternal condemnation of anybody. This chapter is about the fate of nations within history, how God chooses to use the Israelites in history, how God chooses to use Esau's descendants, the Edomites in history, how God chooses to use the Egyptians, represented by Pharaoh, in history, and on it goes. So vessels of mercy are the Israelites, the the nation of Israel that God has chosen to use for for positive purposes in history. And the vessels of of wrath or vessels of judgment would be like the Egyptians or the Edomites and things of that nature. This chapter is not about the salvation or condemnation of individuals in eternity. It is about the fate of nations in history, and therefore any Calvinist interpretation that tries to see individual election to predestin- or predestination to life or condemnation is completely missing the whole point of the chapter. Now, let me just give a counter-argument to that right here. And, and that, by the way, that's become increasingly popular in recent decades with scholarship. Um, so let's, let's address it. Number one, the chapter begins by Paul saying, Romans 9.1, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. So Paul is right now introducing the problem that he's going to spend the rest of Romans 9 to 11 answering and addressing. So whatever our view of Romans 9 and 10 and 11 is going to be, it has to be in response to this problem, this apparent problem, this question that must be answered, that this is this everything else Paul's going to be saying that must run back to this issue. What is the issue? Verse 3, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, anathema, right, accursed, and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. Now, do you see the problem that this chapter is written to address? What is it? It is that the Israelites are not saved in the majority while Paul is writing this letter, and even up until now, 2,000 years later. For the vast majority of church history, the majority of Jews reject the gospel with only a minority receiving Christ. That's the problem that Paul says he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish, anguish about. He's not lying about that. He could even wish he could trade his salvation for theirs, if he could. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They're the Israelites. So he is talking right now, right off the bat, about what? He's not talking about the fate of nations in history. He's talking about the fate of individuals within the nation of Israel in eternity. He's saying, I, w- I could wish myself to be accursed and cut off from Christ. Why would he want that? Because he knows that's what they are. They're accursed, the majority. They're cut off from Christ, the Messiah. They've rejected their own Messiah. And so Paul says, if I could trade places with my Jewish brothers and sisters, I'd do it in a heartbeat. Of course, that's not an option. Only Jesus can take the place of sinners, not Paul. But Paul says, if I could do it, I, I could wish I could do it. You know, I-, I would love to do that if I could, but I can't. Of course, he just got done saying nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, and so certainly he can't separate himself from that love. But the point is, we're talking about the salvation or condemnation of individuals within the nation of Israel. In other words, the majority of Jews have rejected Jesus and are on their way to being accursed in eternity because they are cut off from Christ right now. That's the issue that Paul is addressing in Romans 9 and 10 and 11. Verse 4, they are Israelites, and to them belong, here's the list, number one, the adoption God calls Israel my son, Exodus 4. Number two, the glory. They had the glory of God dwelling in their tabernacle and in their temple, physically, visibly, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Number three, the covenants, uh, most specifically 
the covenant with Moses, the covenant with David, these fundamental covenants that hold all of history together, given to, first first of all, primarily they're given to Israel. Number four, the giving of the law. On Mount Sinai, they got the Torah. Number five, the worship, which is referring probably to temple worship here, a unique and awesome privilege. And number five, the promises, which probably refer to all of God's promises given to Israel. And number six, the biggest one of all, this is verse five, to them belong the patriarchs. Excuse me, that's that's the big one. That's number six. Now number seven is the biggest one of all. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, uh, blessed forever. Amen. So the Messiah is actually an ethnic Jew, and the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, etc., are Jews. They have incredible privileges of being ethnically Jewish, but the fact that God's people have largely rejected God's Messiah seems to indicate that God's not being faithful to his word to Israel. Verse 6 that states the thesis that the rest of Romans 9 to 11 is addressing and Paul is answering. It's Romans chapter 9, verse 6a, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. That's the real issue for Paul. The real issue for Paul is not as if this is a mere thing. It's not merely Israel's status. It is the fact that Israel's status may make people question the very reliability of God's Word. And Paul is going to muster many texts of Scripture and much argumentation to show, and even his own personal self as an eyewitness here, God's Word to Israel has not failed. God's Word to his covenant people has not failed. God has not ultimately rejected his ethnic people Israel. He chose Israel, Deuteronomy 7 says, of all the peoples of the earth, not because they're stronger or mightier, but because he loved them. And God's word has not failed. So how could it be that the majority of Jews could reject Christ and face a Christless eternity under God's curse? How could that happen if God if God has not rejected his people? Because it seems like they look like they've been rejected. How do we know God has kept his word? And Paul begins his answer. Chapter 6, it's not as though the word of God has failed. How do we know? For, because, here's a reason, God's word to Israel has not failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. In other words, not all physical Jews are spiritual Jews. Not all biological Israel is spiritual Israel. This is the point. God never promised to save every single ethnic Jew every single ethnic Israelite. That's not a promise that God made in the Old Testament. So the fact that there is a remnant that's saved right now and a majority that's rejecting the Messiah does not mean God has reneged on his promises to Israel, does not mean God's word to Israel has failed, does not mean God is not faithful to his promises. No, God never made a promise to say that I'm going to save every Israelite. So even if the majority are rejecting Jesus, God never promised that this generation or the current generation, there would be any different. No, God has promised to save true Israel, spiritual Israel, the children of promise, which are those within the larger group of ethnic Israel. And Paul says, but through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. For This is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. That's coming from Genesis uh, chapter 18. One year, I'll be back, God says, and Sarah's going to be pregnant. And that seems impossible because she's 90 and was never able to have children. So the fact is that this child was a child not of the flesh, not a a mere product of human uh, ability. But Isaac was a child of promise, a, a child of God's intervention. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named, and in one year I'm going to come back, and Sarah's going to be pregnant, and Sarah laughs. Right? They name Isaac laughter because that's absurd. 90-year-old women don't get pregnant. 100-year-old men don't bear children. His body was as good as dead. She was uh, far beyond childbearing years, and yet she gets pregnant, and she has a child because nothing will be impossible for the Lord. So here's what we're finding out here. Paul is, is developing a principle of selectivity whereby... Within the ethnic group known as Israel, God can choose one child for the promised blessing and pass over another. Ishmael, who was a direct child of Abraham, does not receive this promised blessing, but Isaac does. And that's because of God's promise. God steps in and creates Isaac and creates the promised line and picks Isaac. Even though Abraham would have preferred Ishmael at first, he said, let Ishmael live before you. But God says, no, 
So this child is supernatural, a child of God's work, not human effort. He's a child of promise, and that's how God's going to call his offspring. Literally, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. The Greek word is called, kaleo. It's going to be used a lot throughout this chapter. This is how God brings his people into existence. In fact, if you just look back a little earlier in Romans chapter 4, talking about this very thing, here's what we're told. We're told about the birth of Isaac. It, this is what we're told. This is uh, Romans 4, verse 17. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of God, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead. That's what he did to Sarah's womb. He gave life to the dead. Who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So God's call is an effective call that brings into existence what was not there. Here, God is going to bring in Abraham's eyes offspring through his divine calling. And those will be children of promise. But someone could object and say, hey, come on. Ishmael was not truly Jewish. His mother was Hagar, the Egyptian handmaid of Sarah. Isaac was truly Jewish. He had Abraham and Sarah for his parents, and so that's why God chose Isaac. But then Paul seals up that loophole in verse 10 and says, and not only so, in other words, I'm going to develop this argument further, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, so now he's got both parents are the same here. Rebekah and, and Isaac, one father, one man, our father, one woman for the wife, Rebecca. This, this is this is different from Hagar and Sarah. One husband, one wife, get twins conceived here, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. Now, what we're seeing here is this. God's selectivity of who will be true spiritual Israel and who will be not true Israel continues according to his electing purpose and not by anything in the person chosen or passed over. It was before they were born or had done anything good or bad. This is not a conditional choice. God did not look down the quarters of time and see that Jacob was going to be a believer and then therefore choose him or look down the quarters of time and see Esau was not going to be a believer, so I won't choose him. No, this is not a conditional choice. It is unconditional. Paul goes out of his way to say that, though they were not yet born. So Paul says, here's the significance of in Genesis 25, verse 23, when, when God said, the older will serve the younger, God was saying this before they were born. And that doesn't just mean that he knew what was going to happen ahead of time. No, this, this happened before they were born because the decision that Jacob would be the superior in that sense and would inherit the promise, that decision was made by God before they were born and it was made not on the basis of anything that the children had done or would do, whether good or evil, so that God's purpose, according to election, might stand. And how does God's election work? It's not because of works, verse 11 says. And we're used to Paul saying, but because of faith. He's already said that in the book of Romans. If you flip back to Romans chapter 3, uh, you will see uh, statements like this. Romans 3.28, For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. So faith and works are contrasted frequently in Paul. They're contrasted in uh, Galatians 2 and, and on and on. So we're used to that. But Paul does not contrast faith and works here, although for an Arminian scheme it would make perfect sense. He picked Jacob not because of works, but because of his faith. He foresaw Jacob's faith, and therefore he chose Jacob. It's not by works of merit, but according to faith that God made his choice. But that's not what God says, because that, that's not true. God's purpose of election would, would continue not because of works, but because of the one calling, or him who calls, or the one who calls. In other words, God who calls. It's not based on works that Jacob or Esau did. It's based on God's sovereign call, God's choice. And that's why she was told the older will serve the younger. And then Paul backs this up with one more Old Testament quote. This one from Malachi chapter 1. He says, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And people will say here, hey, this is not about Jacob, the individual, Esau, the individual. This is about two nations. If you go back and look at the context, I mean, even Jacob and Esau in the womb in Genesis 25, 23, if you go back and look at that, it says two nations are in your womb, two peoples before you. So it seems like we're talking about peoples here. We're not talking about individuals. And then when you look at Malachi 1, Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated. We're talking about two groups of people. We're talking about the Israelites named after Jacob, who got the name Israel. 
and the Edomites, named after their forefather Esau. Uh, and and I, I admit, at least when you first hear that, there, there seems to be some strength to that argument. Yeah, when you go back and look in context, there there is reference to nations that you can see there. I'm not denying that. The, the question ultimately, though, is how is Paul using those texts in this chapter? That's the question I want to understand. And as strong as the arguments appear to many people about nations being the reference points, and I get why people say that, I don't think it is ultimately persuasive. And here's the reason why. Give me, let me give you a few different reasons. Number one, Paul is not answering a question about the fate of nations in history and how God uses the Israelites or the Edomites. That's not what Paul's answering. If Paul is talking right now about the Edomites in verse 13, Esau I hated, and he's talking about God's displeasure in the Edomites, if that's, what, if that's all Paul's trying to say, then it has nothing whatsoever to do with the question Paul is trying to answer. Remember, the problem is that Israel is accursed and cut off from Christ in verse 3, and that this seems to compromise the reliability of God's word in verse 6. And so Paul's responding by saying, no, God never promised to save all Israelites. He promised to save true Israel within larger physical Israel. And that means there has to be a selectivity process to determine who is spiritual Israel within physical Israel and who is not spiritual Israel within physical Israel. And so Paul begins drawing out the principle of God's selectivity amongst his old, old covenant uh, people uh, from the book of Genesis. That's what God does, and he uses Malachi also to back this up. So Paul's purpose here is to show a principle of God selecting within his people, one over another, to create God's covenant people. And clearly Ishmael was not chosen by God. He was passed over, and Ishmael's not part of the Old Testament, Old Covenant people of God. Ishmael is part of the, is the forefather of the Ishmaelites. He's not part of Israel. And so God's selectivity here is showing that Isaac is in, he's actually at the head, he's in the people of God, the old covenant people of God, Israel, and Ishmael is out. This is showing a principle of selectivity of the offspring of Abraham. Second level, even more strongly, you have two twins. You can't be more Jewish than Jacob and Esau are in the, in the, the twins in the, in the womb of Isaac and Rebekah, who are both uh, from Abraham's family. Remember Genesis 24, where they have to go find a wife for Isaac, Rebekah, amongst Abraham's ancestors. So you can't get more Jewish here. There's no Egyptian mother like Hagar. You can't get more Jewish than Isaac and Rebekah. And what happens? These two children who are equally candidates for being part of the covenant people, what happens? God chooses to select Jacob, who will be nicknamed Israel, as the forefather of all the 12 tribes of Israel, a major player in the rest of the whole Bible. And what does he do? He passes over Esau and doesn't allow Esau to be part of the covenant people of Israel. Instead, Esau is removed. He's not part of the covenant people. He does have many offspring, but he becomes the head of the Edomites, who really become a symbol of the enemies of God's people throughout the Old Testament. And just read the shortest book in the Old Testament, Obadiah. The whole book is an attack on the wickedness of the Edomites, and, and people will argue that uh, the Old New Testament sees these texts on Ed the Edomites, as, and, and really within the Old Testament as well, they start to become uh, symbolic and pictorial of all of God's enemies throughout, throughout time. So the Edomites are stand-ins now for God's enemies. So God is showing the principle of selectivity in the excuse me, Paul is showing the principle of selectivity amongst God's people in the Old Testament. And he's giving examples of physical offspring of Abraham, where God selects one child to be in the covenant people, Isaac, and another child to not be in the covenant people, Ishmael. God chooses one child to be in the covenant people, Jacob, and one child who's equally ethnically Jewish to not be part of the covenant people, Esau. So although, yes, in the Old Testament context, these 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 men end up embodying whole nations. Esau embodies the Edomites. Isaac embodies the Israelites. In some sense, that is absolutely true, and that's why those, those verses appear that way in their original context. But what Paul is drawing out is not the national implications. Paul's not talking about the fate of nations in time, space, history. He's referring to the principle of God's selectivity amongst ethnically Jewish people who are descended from Abraham to make his point that he's been arguing for since verse 6, which is this, not all physical uh, descendants of Abraham are spiritual descendants of Abraham. Not all physical Israelites are spiritual Israelites. And so he is beautifully illustrating that principle. And that principle of selectivity means that God is the one who chooses who is in and who he's going to pass over. He chooses Jacob, not Esau, before they're born, before they've done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand. It's not of works, it's of God who calls. Okay, now, if you're seeing that, I think that's a strong argument against the national 
view, which is the Arminian interpretation of Romans 9, to try to get out of individual selectivity for salvation or, or God passing over for condemnation. I don't think I think Paul is clearly here talking about that very thing. Number two, Paul is using in this text salvation language. So he, let me show you what I mean. He uses words like, I'm going to miss some of them, but he uses the words like offspring. He uses words like children of God in verse 8. Those who are called, verse 7 and other verses, verse 27, um, not verse 27, verse verse, um, uh, verse uh, 11, the one who calls. He uses the children of the promise. He uses children of the flesh, which represents unbelievers, the children of God, uh, counted as offspring. The word counted is a salvation language. Paul is filling up with language that Paul sometimes only uses. Like the phrase children of God is only otherwise used by Paul to refer to Christians, born-again believers in Jesus Christ. So Paul is using language here that refers to individual salvation throughout the rest of his letters, normally speaking, uh, and sometimes only ever used for that purpose in his other letters and other parts throughout Romans. And he, all that kind of language is piled together here to, to signal we're not talking about the fate of nations in history. We're talking about the salvation or condemnation of individuals because he's using salvation language here uh, in this in these texts. Now, what about Jacob? I loved Esau. I hated. Yes, in its original context, uh, Malachi 1, he's talking about the descendants of Jacob, the Israelites, and the descendants of Esau, the Edomites. Um, if you go back and look at it, you can read it. Greg went through it really well in Sunday school. If you can go back and look at that on our on our church YouTube channel, but here's what I'll say: Jacob, I loved. Loved here is basically a stand-in for the word elect. Uh, God, love means set my special covenant love. I've I've set my electing love on Jacob and hated here of Esau. Uh, it doesn't just mean God's mad at, at Esau and he's flying off the handle, but in context, hated means rejected. Just like God chose Isaac. And passed over Ishmael. He loved Isaac and hated Ishmael in the sense of passed over or rejected Ishmael. So with Jacob and Esau, God put his electing love on Jacob and did not put his electing love on Esau. That is, in that sense, he hated or rejected Esau. Um, it's not some sort of emotional word. It's referring to how God relates to his people in regards to his covenant, his salvation here. And he will flesh that out as we go. For those who say that hated just means loved less, um, I would say, well, then you still have the same problem, which is that God is loving one child more and one child less in the womb before they've done anything good or bad in order that his purpose of election might stand. You still have the problem of selectivity regarding the unborn children. But I, I think it's more than just love less. I think it is referring to rejection in terms of uh, the doctrine of election here. Now, verse 14 is what everybody says in response to what I'm saying right now, and what I think Paul's saying. Everybody, when they first hear it, says the same thing. What shall we say then? Is there injustice? Adakia, the word for uh, unrighteousness. Shall we say there's injustice or is there unrighteousness on God's part? By no means, he says. Now, why in the world would someone hear this and say that maybe God is unrighteous or unjust? Because if God chooses one child and passes over the other child in the womb apart from anything they've done or will do, not even their future faith foreseen, if God's choice is grounded only in God's electing purpose, not of works but of God who calls, then that sounds unfair, unjust, unrighteous, and that's a sign that we actually are interpreting Paul's words here correctly. Yeah, Paul knows that you think that what he's saying sounds unrighteous, and so he has to address that. And here's how he goes. Is there unrighteousness on God's part? By no means. And then he gives two reasons. Now, just, you got to follow me here. If you have a Bible in front of you, it'd be great to look at it here to see it. Verse 14 is the problem, or the question. Is God unrighteous by choosing one over another before birth by his own choice? Is that unrighteous? And then Paul gives two reasons why it's not. Verse 15 and verse 17 are the two reasons. They both begin with the word for, gar in Greek, F-O-R in, in English. So, for, because, number one, verse 15, and then point number two, for, the scripture says in verse 17. Both of them are scriptural quotations uh, from the book of Exodus. And then each of those reasons has an implication that follows it. So verse 14 is the question, is God unrighteous because he chooses one over the other before birth apart from anything they've done? And then reason number one is verse 15 with a scriptural quotation. Verse 16 is an implication. So then, Verse 17 is the second reason it's not unjust, for the scripture says, 
And then he draws out a second implication. So then, verse 18. So what are the reasons and what are the implications? Here we go. Verse 15. For he says to Moses, now he's going to quote Exodus 33, 19, when Moses asked to show God, for God to show him his glory, when he's uh, around the time he's interceding that God not destroy Israel for the, the golden calf incident. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Okay, now we talked about this in Sunday school. <clears throat> the first objection when someone says it's unrighteous of God to choose Jacob for blessing and to pass over Esau, when someone says that that's unrighteous, Paul says, actually, no. God is merciful to whom he is merciful. He's compassionate to whom he's compassionate. What that means is, first of all, you, you've misunderstood the word mercy. You, you don't understand what mercy means. Mercy means undeserved favor, right? And so if if God were to give no mercy to either Jacob or Esau, who has he wronged? Who has he acted unrighteously towards? <clears throat> to whom has he acted with un injustice? The answer is nobody. If God leaves both of them to their own devices, they live in sin, they die in sin, and they perish eternally in sin, God has done wrong to neither of them. So if God shows mercy to one and not the other, God hasn't wronged anyone because that's the definition of mercy. If you're walking down the road and a homeless person comes up and you give him 20 bucks, and then you come up to a second homeless person and you don't give him anything, and you find a third homeless person and you give him 100 bucks, and then you find another homeless person and you don't give him anything, and you find a fourth homeless person or whatever we're doing here, and you give him 1000 bucks, and then you find the next one and you don't give him anything, who have you wronged? No one. You didn't have to give any of them money. The fact that you gave 10 bucks to one guy, 100 bucks to another guy, and 100,000 bucks to another guy means you didn't do anything wrong. You just you, you gave either exactly what they deserve, which is nothing in the, in the sense of they, you don't owe them anything legally, or you can give them more than you deserve, better than you deserve. But mercy shown to one and not to another is not the same as being unjust or unrighteous in, in God's interaction with us. Now, but the verse is more significant than just that because of where the verse comes from. This comes again from Exodus 33. Listen to the context. The Lord said to Moses, this is Exodus 33, 17. The Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Make all my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see my face and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. Now, this is why this verse is so significant. I mean, if all it meant was what I just said about mercy, I think that would be a sufficient answer. But it's so much bigger than this. Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. This is a significant thing, right? And God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I'll proclaim my name, and I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Right now in this text, we are, we're getting down to the very definition of who God is. Just a little bit later, a few verses later, the Lord passed before him, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is where we are defining God. God is coming as close as he can to telling us who he is. Who are you, Lord? Show me your glory. And what does the Lord say? Number one, I'll show you my goodness. I'll proclaim my name, and I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion. I'll show mercy on whom I show mercy. So this is at the very time when God is telling us the essence of who he is, right? All my goodness, proclaim my name. I'll be merciful and gracious to whom I will. Those three things go together, and this is at the very essence of who God is. God is saying that part of the essence of, of his glory and the basic um, the basic existence of who God is, the ba basic essence of who God is, God is saying this. I've got goodness, 
I've got my name, and I am free to choose whom I show mercy to. That That's boiling down the very essence of who God is. He gets to choose to whom he is merciful and to whom he is not, to whom he shows grace and whom he's not. This is at the very heart of who God is, what it means for God to be God, for, is for God to be free in his sovereignty, to make the decisions of how the world runs and what happens and who receives mercy and who doesn't. That's who God is. So this is not just like a random verse about God being merciful. No, this is God at the very explaining who he is. And he's saying, fundamentally, I've got all my goodness, I've got all my name, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I'll be merciful to whom I will be merciful. So Paul's not picking a random verse. He's picking a verse that goes to the very heart of who God is. Is God being unjust to pick to put mercy on one and not on another? No, God's being himself. This is the very definition of God. God has all this goodness. He has this name to proclaim. And guess what? He chooses whom he shows mercy to and whom he does not. That's what it means for God to be God. So no, God's not being unjust. He's being himself. Okay, He's being himself as defined in the Old Testament. And Paul draws an implication out of that. Verse 16. So then, back in Romans 9. Verse 16, so then, here's the implication. If God chooses to whom he will show mercy and and whatnot, here's the implication. So then it, that is God's election to whom he will show mercy, God's election of whom he shows mercy, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That's just like earlier. God chose Jacob, not Esau, before they were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might stand, not because of works. This verse says not because of human will or exertion, but verse 12, 11 says, but because of God who calls. And here it says, but on God who has mercy. So in other words, at, at rock bottom, it's not because of my works. It's not because of anything I have done good or bad or will do good or bad like Jacob and Esau. And here it says it's not because of human will. Not human exertion, literally in the Greek, it's not of him who wills or him who runs. It's not of anything I do or would do or could do or will do or might do that God makes his choice of electing mercy. No, God's choice of who to elect to place his saving mercy on boils down to God who calls in verse 11 or here in verse 16, but on God who has mercy. Remember Genesis, God at his very essence is free. To distribute mercy as he pleases. That's what it means for God to be God. That's how God defines himself to Moses in that famous and incredibly important text. And here, God's election of mercy, his, his choice of who to give eternal mercy to, saving mercy to, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Free will is not the answer. Future foreseen faith is not why God chooses you. Your good deeds is not why God chooses you. Your bad deeds is not why God chooses you. Your whatever, none of your will, none of your efforts, none of your exertion, none of your willing or running, none of it is the reason God chose you. It's because God is free. That's who God is. He's free in distributing mercy, and God makes this choice within the counsel of his own will. It's unconditional election. Just like Ephesians 1.11. In him we have obtained an inheritance. How do we get saved? Having been predestined, According to our free will, no. Having been predestined according to the purpose of our will, no. Having been predestined according to the foreseen faith God saw that we would one day exert, no. Having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, God, who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Predestination is in accordance with God's will, not my will. If it was left up to my will, I would never choose God, and therefore He would never choose me in the Arminian system. I'm just never going to become a Christian. But verse 12, because I'm dead in sin. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. It's all ultimately back to the glory of God as the ultimate reason why God chooses. So God is not unrighteous to distribute mercy to some and not others because God's very essence is to choose who he gives mercy to. If you're rich, you can choose who you are charitable to. It's part of what the privilege is of being rich. You get to make that choice. And mercy is undeserved. So by definition, God's not wronging you if he passes over you. If he gives mercy to you, that's infinite grace. If he doesn't give mercy to you, you're getting exactly what you deserve. So God's not being unjust. And the implication is God's election of who to give mercy to is not dependent on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now, point number two for why God is not unjust in his distribution of mercy through unconditional election. 
Point number two, verse 17 of Romans 9. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So if verses 15 and 16 gave God's giving of mercy, described God's giving of mercy unconditionally, his saving mercy, electing it unconditionally, that corresponds to Jacob I have loved, right? Jacob I have chosen, my electing love. Now verse verse uh, 17 and 18 are going to deal with the flip side, the negative side, which is Esau I've hated, Esau I've rejected, Esau I have not chosen, and, and that would be Pharaoh here, right? For Scripture says to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. It's amazing. Of all the verses, and there's a ton of verses, more than I think a dozen verses that talk about Pharaoh's hard heart, maybe a lot more than a dozen, of all the Exodus verses that describe God hardening Pharaoh's heart or Pharaoh's heart being hardened, Paul does not even pick one. He doesn't even pick a verse about Paul about Pharaoh's heart being hardened, which is amazing because he's talking about God hardening hearts, and he could just pick a verse about God hardening Pharaoh's heart, but he doesn't. Instead, he picks a verse about God's purpose for Pharaoh in the Exodus event. I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God is not being unrighteous for hardening Pharaoh. How, could, how is God not being unrighteous for hardening Pharaoh in sin? And the Arminian answer is that, well, God's just hardening Pharaoh in response to Pharaoh hardening himself, right? I'm, I'm sure you've heard that, that God is just hardening Pharaoh in response to Pharaoh hardening himself. Well, first of all, that's not what Exodus teaches. Exodus says that God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart twice before ever Pharaoh's heart is mentioned uh, at all being hardened. So Exodus 4, Exodus 7, God says, I'm going to tell Pharaoh to let my people go, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And then the first time we're told that Pharaoh did not let the people go, it says it's because his heart was hardened, which is passive, probably a divine passive, meaning God is the one doing it. But he doesn't say, even if it's not explicit there, it does say this, Pharaoh's heart was hardened as the Lord had said. Well, what had the Lord said already twice? I will harden his heart. So from the beginning, God is the one hardening his heart. Pharaoh hardens it as well because God uh, is working in such a way that Pharaoh also hardens his heart. But ultimately, God is the one hardening Pharaoh's heart. But if you go back uh, to uh, Romans chapter 1, here's what we find out. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven, Romans 1.18, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Adakia, the same word here. Is there unrighteousness in God? Injustice? There's unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, same word, suppress the truth. And what, what does it say they do? Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile and their thinking, their foolish hearts were darkened. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. And they, um, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worshiped and served the cre uh, creature rather than the creator. <coughs> so what are we seeing? We're seeing that God defines unrighteousness as dishonoring God's name. Right there. Worshiping creator, a creation over creator. So unrighteousness means not glorifying God. Right? Worshiping creation over creator. Here, is God adakia? Is he unrighteous? Is he unjust? And the answer is no. How is God not unjust to harden Pharaoh's heart? The answer is because of God's reason for hardening Pharaoh's heart. What was God's reason? That for this very purpose, I've raised you up, Pharaoh, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God is not unjust or unrighteous to harden Pharaoh's heart because of God's, because of God's reason. God's reason is to show the glory of his name through Pharaoh. How does he do that? In Exodus 4 to 14, by Pharaoh's hard heart elongating the plagues, so that instead of getting no plagues and the people just go, or getting one plague or three plagues or eight plagues, you get ten plagues. And these plagues show God's superiority over the Egyptian gods. And so the longer Pharaoh's heart is hardened and the more he resists God's revealed and commanded will, uh, but still according with God's secret sovereign will of hardening his heart, so long as that happens, then you have months and months of God glorifying himself over the Egyptian so-called gods and, and getting more glory so that in Joshua chapter 2, Rahab has heard the fame of God's name and the conquering and conquest of the Egyptians and the Egyptian army and drowning them in the Red Sea. Forty years later, they're still talking about it, and they still have fear about it because God got a name for himself. He showed off his glory over Egypt. So God has a good and God-glorifying purpose, a righteous purpose for the negative side here of his sovereignty, which is passing over Pharaoh, hardening Pharaoh, allowing Pharaoh to go on in his way.
Verse 19. Here's the second objection. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? I mean, this is the objection, isn't it? It's amazing to me that Paul states this injection, which is an objection many people have, and Paul doesn't say you've misunderstood what I'm trying to say. He doesn't back one inch away from this statement. He doesn't disagree with the statement. He disagrees with the attitude of the one asking it, but he doesn't disagree with the content of the question. I mean, he does disagree with it, but he doesn't disagree with some of the formulation of it. Listen to this, verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And this is this is one of the most amazing verses in the Bible in many ways. <clears throat> you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? This is teaching not irresistible grace, irresistible hardening. Pharaoh was going to disobey God because God ordained it. God hardened his heart to ensure that Pharaoh would say no. And so the question is, well, then why does God have a problem with Pharaoh? Why would God judge Pharaoh for doing what he could not resist doing, which is obey God's sovereign will, which is to not let the people go, right? God says, you will command him to let the people go, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go, and I will bring these plagues against him. So if God's sovereign will, not his commanded will, his commanded will was let the people go. His sovereign will was, I'm going to harden his heart so he won't let the people go so I can show off my glory over the Egyptians. So if God's sovereign will is that Pharaoh not obey Moses' command and that he stay recalcitrant in his state of unrepentant sin and allow all these plagues to happen, if that was God's sovereign will, how can you resist God's sovereign will? Whatever God sovereignly wills is going to come to pass irresistibly. So if Pharaoh was guaranteed to disobey God because God's sovereign will ordained that Pharaoh disobey God because God hardened his heart, then how can God be mad at Pharaoh for doing what God willed him to do in his sovereignty? You see, I mean, this is strong stuff here. You will say to me then, why does God still find fault with Pharaoh or whoever? For how could Pharaoh resist God's sovereign will? God ordained that Pharaoh would do what he did. How can God blame Pharaoh for doing it? It's amazing to me that in response to this, Paul doesn't say, you've misunderstood what I'm saying. Isn't that amazing? Paul doesn't say, you've misunderstood my point. Actually, what I'm saying is God looked down the corridors of time and he saw that Pharaoh was going to be an evil, evil man. And so he simply hardened him in response to Pharaoh's initial hardening. Or he, he simply allowed Pharaoh to harden himself or whatever. He, he, no, no, no. no that's, that's not what it says. It says here, God's will, his sovereign will, which was irresistible, was that Pharaoh disobey. And yet God's going to hold Pharaoh accountable. That's, the, that's what the question is saying. And Paul doesn't disagree with that. Paul disagrees with the idea that it's wrong for God to find fault. So here's what he says, verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Wow, Paul doesn't back off an inch. In fact, if anything, he pushes the matter forward even further. It's astonishing stuff here. When he says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? This does not mean Paul or God reject humble, genuine questions about his sovereignty in its interaction with human responsibility. I don't think God despises genuine, humble, contrite, trembling at his word kinds of questions. But there is an arrogant way, a confrontational way, a sinful, egotistical, I know better than God kind of way to ask these questions. It's kind of like Zechariah and Mary before Christmas, right? Zechariah finds out that he and his wife are going to get pregnant. And he says, how can this be? Uh, I'm so old. And Gabriel strikes him mute for nine months, right? He sinned. Zechariah was a righteous man, but he sinned. His question was a sinful question. It came from unbelief. Whereas Mary says, when he, she finds out she'll be pregnant, how can this be? I've never known a man. And the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And she says, let it be to me as you've said. I'm the Lord's servant. And she's blessed. So both Zechariah and Mary ask a question about what God's going to do pregnancy and unlikely scenarios, 
But one question is coming from fundamental unbelief, and one question is coming from fundamental humility and belief. God doesn't despise Mary's type question, but he does <coughs> bring down punishment there on Zechariah's type question. So here, Paul says, no, no, no. A, a, a vase cannot say to the vase maker, why are you making me like this? Has the potter no right? I love this. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? See, people will sometimes jump to texts in the Old Testament like Jeremiah 18 where God is the potter and his people are the clay and uh, there's more of a corporate element there and it's more. Of, and God will say, listen, if you repent, I'll remake you into a different vessel. And people will use the context of a text like Jeremiah 18 and they will, they will read it into this text here and say, see, the vessels are not permanent. God can change. If you're a vessel in one direction, God can change you in another kind of vessel by your free will choice. And uh, it's more corporate in, in Jeremiah 18. So much, not so much individual. It's more referring to the majority of Israelites rebelling or the majority of a nation rebelling versus obeying. And so they read that back into this text, and they 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 say, see, this is it's it's corporate. It's it, God can change you if you repent. It's conditional, all that stuff. I'm not denying the truth of Jeremiah 18. I just don't think that what what what's being said in Jeremiah 18 uh, is what Paul is saying here. The, the potter and pot metaphor is used throughout Scripture. It's used in intertestamental Jewish literature. It's used all over the place. You can find it, I think, in Job and in Isaiah and in, uh, in multiple places in Isaiah, Jeremiah. You find it all over the place. And Paul is drawing on that general milieu of, of those kinds of texts, but he's not using Jeremiah 18 as his text because the fundam- as a hermeneutical rule, here's what you got to do. You've got to allow how the author you're reading uses something in the current context as the fundamental interpretive grid. You, you don't say, okay, it looks like Paul's using it this way, but let's go back and find this verse over here, and then let's let's take that meaning and trump whatever Paul seems to be saying here. Let's just change it where that's not what Paul meant. No, 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 no. Jeremiah 18 cannot be the fundamental controlling hermeneutic for this text. What Paul is saying in this chapter and in the larger context of Romans has to be the most important hermeneutical interpretive grid. And when you look in the context, what do you see? What, what do we see in this chapter? Paul is dealing with why not all Israel is saved. The begins the chapter saying, I, I could trade my salvation for theirs. That's the problem. So we're talking about the salvation of individuals within Israel. At ch- the, the chapter ends, really the next chapter begins, 10-1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, the Israelites, is that they might be saved. Sozo, saved. So we're talking about the salvation, the eternal salvation of individuals within Israel, the majority of Israelites, the, the, the majority of, of Israel. When you look later in chapter 9, you look at verse 27, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Same word, sozo. That, that's referring to salvation. So the chapter begins with, I would trade my salvation for theirs. The next chapter begins with, I'm praying for their salvation, their sozo, that they might be saved. And then chapter 9, verse 27, the remnant of Israel will be saved, sozo. And then here with Isaac and uh, Ishmael and whatnot, you have all this salvation language. You have counted as offspring. You have the children of promise. You have the children of flesh, which refers generally to unbelievers. You have offspring language. You have children of God which parallels sons of the living God in verse 26, which refers to saved Gentiles in that text, saved Jews in verse uh, verse 8. You have all this salvation language that's being used here. We're talking about the salvation and the lostness of individuals up to now within Israel, right? He's going to expand this to refer to Gentiles as well. But we're not talking about the fate of nations in history. For Paul to go on a tangent about the fate of the Egyptians in history or the fate of the Edomites in history or the fate even of Israel in Old Testament history is not the point here. He's dealing with the salvation of the majority, uh, excuse me, the, the, the lack of salvation for the majority of ethnic Jews. That's the issue. And he's talking about how, why is that? Well, God has selected to save within Israel, spiritual Israel, a selected group within larger Israel. How does God make that selectivity? He chose Isaac, not Ishmael. He chose Jacob, not Esau, apart from works, according to his own sovereignty, not because of anything they had done or would do, but because of his own calling, his own sovereignty, not by human will or exertion, but because of God who shows mercy. Well, what does that mean for those who are hardened in Israel? Those who rejected the gospel, what does it mean for them? The answer is, just like with Pharaoh, God hardens whom he wills. God chooses whom he will harden. Why does he do it? Why would God ever do that? Is that unjust? No. God owes mercy to none. If he gives it to you, that's infinitely better than you deserve. If he doesn't give it to you, God has done you no wrong, so God is not doing anything wrong. God defines his very essence and nature back in Exodus when he says, I show mercy to him, I show mercy. That's who God is. 
God will show you his glory. He'll make his name pass before you. He'll proclaim his name because God shows mercy to whom he will, and he shows compassion to whom he will. The very essence of God is his freedom to distribute mercy as he pleases. And so this, this choice is not based on us. It's based on God who shows mercy. And God hardens people. Why would he harden people? To show the glory of his, of, of his name, over, even over those who are being hardened. We'll talk about that more later. Romans 11 will say, God has part, part of, brought a partial hardening upon ethnic Israel so that the Gentiles would stream in. So God has a salvific and God-glorifying purpose even for the hardening of the majority of Jews. And if you don't believe that that's what God's doing, Romans 11 says it like this. What is God's reply to Elijah? I have kept for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. God did that. He preserved the 7,000. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant of ethnic Jews who were saved, chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. That is salvation, righteousness and salvation. Israel, the majority, failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect within Israel obtained it but the rest were hardened. So the remnant who God chose by grace obtained salvation, but the majority, the rest were hardened. Who hardened them? As it is written, God, this is Romans eleven eight. as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. So God gave them the hardened heart. So it's amazing to me that the parallel with Pharaoh, the ultimate enemy of Israel, what does Pharaoh represent in parallel in the modern day time Paul's writing? Unbelieving Israel, the majority of ethnic Jews are similar to Pharaoh in their hard-heartedness, which would have been an amazing comparison in their mind. They would not have liked that, but, but that certainly is true, and it would have been an act of awakening mercy. Okay, now, back to Romans 9. He's given two reasons why God is not unjust to, give, to elect to give mercy to some and not others. Number one, that's, his, that's who he is. He's free to give mercy. That's what mercy is. It's undeserved. Implication, it's not by human will. It's by God's choice. Reason number two, God's not unjust to distribute mercy as he pleases. Romans 9, 17, it's for his own glory, even to harden Pharaoh's heart. It's for his glory. And then he draws out a second implication, verse 18. So then, God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. God, 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 is, God chooses who, is, who, he's, who he mercies and who he hardens. You ask, well, then how can God blame us if we can't resist his sovereign will? And Paul says, you're exactly right. God, we are still blameworthy, even though we cannot resist God's sovereign will. If God is sovereignly willed that we become faithful believers, that ultimately is owing to God. If God has chosen that we be ultimately unbelievers, um, the sin is ultimately owing to us because that comes from our nature. God does not ordain, uh, God does not, uh, is not the author of sin. He can't ordain evil events, but he's not the author of sin. He's not the, the agent who is responsible for the sin. But it's right. That's right. God can find fault with Pharaoh or me, even though Pharaoh and I cannot ultimately resist his will, even if his will includes hardening us. And the potter has the right over the clay to make out of one vessel something for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. And then we get to the ultimate thing, Romans 9, 22 and 23. So just like the potter can make any pot he wants, he can make an honorable or dishonorable pot. What is it? What is that to you? The potter has the right. Now, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, just like with Pharaoh, right? Did God want to show, did God desire to show his power in Pharaoh? For this very purpose, I have raised you up. What's God's desire? I've raised you up, why? To show my power in you that my name might be proclaimed to all the earth. Okay, so here he says, what if God desiring to show his wrath, just like he did with Pharaoh, Red Sea, plagues, and to make his power known, just like he did with Pharaoh, he showed his power over the Egyptians and their gods in Pharaoh. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In order to make known, why would God do that? Why would God prepare individuals who are vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Here's why. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. I just want to say here, prepared, be, prepared for destruction is referring to hell. Destruction in Paul is, is a reference to hell. I mean, just look at Romans 2. I'm not going to go there right now. But, but destruction refers to eternal destruction. And here, vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory Glory here is referring to heaven. I will now go to, to Romans 2 just for a second. 
It says, he will render to each one according to his works, Romans 2, 7, to those who by patience and well-doing, this is a believer, seek glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. So, glory is referring to eternal glory. So, we're again clearly talking about the eternal fate of individuals, whether vessels of destruction eternally in hell or vessels of glory eternally in the new creation, the new heavens and new earth. Now, why in the world would God create someone who ultimately ends up as a vessel of wrath, he patiently endures with them through their life of 80 years of sinning, and then brings upon their death, and then brings upon his wrath and power in them in eternity. Why would God ordain that? And the answer is the same reason he did it over Pharaoh and the Egyptians at the Red Sea. God patiently endured Pharaoh, and then drowned his host in the Red Sea, brought upon them wrath on them in the Red Sea to show his power and to make his glory known. Why? So that the vessels of mercy in that scene, the Israelites, would have something to sing about. They would glorify God for all of his attributes, the glory of his holiness over, over sin, his wrath over the Egyptians, his power over the Egyptian gods or so-called gods, his mercy toward the Israelites who were no more deserving than the Egyptians. The Israelites should have drowned just like the Egyptians, right? To show his grace and forgiveness and patience and kindness toward Israel and his wrath and fury and holiness and power against the Egyptians. All of God's attributes, like a, like a glorious diamond, are seen in every refracted angle, every single facet. All of who God is is put on full display. Why ultimately? The most ultimate uh, display God wants to show is his mercy, his, his, his grace. Look, what if God, desiring to show his wrath, and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, in order. What's the ultimate goal of the vessels of wrath and they're being destroyed under wrath? What's the ultimate goal? In order to make known the riches of God's glory for the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So now he is referring to all Christians, whether Jew or Greek, whether Jew or Gentile, from all the world, and he's saying that those are the ones whom God has called. He's sovereignly summoned them to himself for salvation. He's made them vessels of mercy. He's prepared them for glory. And the reason why there are some like Esau that he passes over. There, there are some like Ishmael that he passes over. Why would there some like Pharaoh? He hardens in their sin. And that they can't resist his sovereign will. Why would God do that? To show his power and wrath in condemning them for their sin. So that the vessels of mercy... Believers from Jews and Gentiles whom God has sovereignly called to himself, not by works, but because of God who calls, not because we've done anything right or wrong, not by human will or exertion, but because of God's sheer electing mercy. That's who God is. He's free to distribute his mercy to whom he will. When God elects you and saves you for mercy, makes you a vessel for glory. Why is he doing that? So that in eternity, you will look back on the vessels of wrath as they experience God's powerful judgment and wrath on them. And you will realize that you have not a shred of of any reason why you are not in that lake of fire? That God's choice of you was not because of a foreseen virtue in you, not because of foreseen faith in you, not because you were wiser, smarter, more intelligent, more put together, more naturally spiritual than someone else. No, the only difference maker in why you're in heaven and they are in hell is because of God's electing choice of you. And that will bring tears of disbelief and wonder and awe that you're not there. And you'll be able to sing a song much like the Israelites sung on the other side of the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 15. Here are the words that we will be able to sing in eternity. The Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the shore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. Do you hear this? God's power and wrath. And what are they going to do in response as vessels of mercy? The people feared the Lord. They believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. And the people, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. This Lord is my, the strength of my song. He has become my salvation. Vessels of mercy. This is my God. I will praise him. This is my Father's God. I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he has cast into the sea. They're praising God for showing off his power and wrath over the Egyptians and drowning them. Vessels of wrath. They're praising God for this. Why? Pharaoh's chariots is cast into the sea. The chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, desiring to show his power and his wrath, endured with great patience, vessels of mercy. Great power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrew your adversaries. You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The, sea, sea, the, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill. I will draw the sword. My hand shall destroy them. They're talking about me and I'm in control. 
You blew with the wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. Yet you have, what, led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Uh, now the chiefs of Edom are dismayed. Trembling has seized the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away, etc. Do you see this? God gets more glory when he has vessels of wrath justly prepared for judgment. Now listen, every time a vessel of wrath sins, they are doing it of their own true choice because of their sinful nature. God is, uh, is ordaining it, but they are ultimately responsible. God's vessels of mercy are saved. They look out and they are amazed by God's amazing grace and kindness to them. So yes, God has purposes for his own glory for acts. None of this none of this, in any way mitigates or eliminates human responsibility or human accountability. In fact, if you're in Romans 9, and I'm almost done here, Romans 9 immediately will pick back up after verse 29 with human responsibility. In other words, divine sovereignty is the ultimate reason why some believe and some don't believe, but that does not minimize the responsibility we have to believe and the wickedness and the culpability we have for disbelieving. Romans 9.30, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that the that Israel who pursued a law that would not lead that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone, etc. So they are fully culpable if they reject Christ. They are fully culpable for disbelieving in him, for stumbling over the stumbling stone. And the Gentiles believe and they are rewarded for that. But ultimately, behind all that, it is God's sovereign choice that creates believers or unbelievers, that creates the elect or those who are passed over. And I think that's what Romans 9 is teaching. It's not teaching the fate of nations in history. It is teaching the salvation of individuals within those nations in eternity. So thank you very much for listening.